Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. That's it. We don't have any guests today. We have no Adi. Adi is busy with work. Dad Adi, if you listen to this, Adi, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> and we are going to talk about CICD pipelines. Because we had an episode on this a few weeks back and I wasn't there. And I have lots of things to say about CICD pipelines. So I just grabbed Alan and was like, Alan, I want to talk about this. And you have you're not allowed to say no. So uh, Nine. Can I say <laughs> nine? Nine. Yes. Exactly. We don't want to rehash what we talked about in the previous episode, but we want to more talk about, okay, what are some best practices in general and how do these apply to Elixir? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So with that said, Alan, how does your usually CI slash CD pipeline look like? Do you have some templates you always use? Like what does CI CD consider for you personally? Yeah, I mean, mine's pretty uh, straightforward. So usually I have like a staging branch, which I call like my pre-production or whatever you want to call that one. And I also have a branch master, usually or main for if you guys are doing it that way for production. And then uh, every other branch, we also run CI on, but of course it's different, right? So I'm using GitLab CI, if you ever played around with that one before. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty straightforward. I mean, basically you can copy and paste everything. But yeah, so for every branch, you always run all the tests. Now I've changed. I didn't, didn't have this one before, but because of Adi, I kind of decided to change it now. So now every time I run mixed tests, I run mixed tests dash dash cover and try to get my coverage up high. And for master and staging, what I usually do is build the container, run the tests, and then deploy, which I think I'm going to change it to first test build container then deploy because sometimes you build the container and then you test it and it's broken <laughs> so that's a, a problem otherwise i think for that for most of my cases i think that works just fine right when we had the episode i think we talked about the guests gave a lot of really really cool stuff that i'm thinking to add in but i'm not too sure about all of them i think i gave the list little link right did you take a look at those briefly i mean like i like i said i wasn't there and i also didn't dig too deeply into into the episode and i also haven't listened to it so i can you cannot educate me um, but i briefly bad sasha over the list. bad sasha <laughs> yes i i actually occasionally do listen to episodes of ours if i want to refresh myself on something we talked about so that that happens it's my own own little notebook sometimes to remind myself of things but yeah like we we, we the episode with a guest he actually has a quite a extensive list of, of checks i'm not sure if it's worth going into those too much because i mean we did to really have that episode talking about it but it's it's definitely more than i usually do and i already am somebody who likes to cross his t's and dots his eyes so to speak for example i mean i, I publish a number of open source libraries uh, there's another one in the pipeline in the making and actually i wanted the episode to be about that one but then adi didn't show up and i wanted to talk about with you alan and adi but there's there tends to be like a template i i'm using there which i wrote myself um because Depending on what kind of product or software product you're writing, it's sometimes very, very useful to also have multiple different versions running, running the code tests, right? Um, in this case, for my libraries, I run the tests on like a bunch of Elixir versions and OTP combinations, um, just to make sure that it's compatible with like older uh, Elixir versions and then newer OTP versions. And on there, I then always, always, always use like test, but I also have like one target, which is just doing coverage i usually use coveralls for that which because i like the integration with github there and also how it posts comments on like pull requests and i also tend to do dialyzer for my personal projects for my libraries i don't tend to do dialyzer anymore 
for yeah private projects products software development kind of thing because it's I feel not worth the hassle. But for libraries, when people actually might consume those libraries and they also might run dialyzer on their projects, I don't want to have them deal with broken type specs, which is why I use dialyzer for these libraries, but not for projects. Yeah, sue me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised you actually run dialyzer because that that is a pretty expensive process, right? And also you need to hold on to those Will they PLT files until the next yes. time you run it? Yes, which is also why I don't deal with that uh, with that complexity anymore for um, private code. Let's say that which isn't consumed by somebody else, because I mean, and that is like I think where we can kind of go into the best practice part of things, right? I mean, at the end of the day, to really give you value from the CI/CD pipeline, it needs to run fast as fast as possible, right? In my experience, the magic number is kind of a minute. So if your CI pipeline tends finishes in under one minute, then people are even willing to say, okay, I'm going to push something. Then I'm just going to sit here, lean back, drink a sip of coffee and wait until this thing finishes, right? If you go significantly over that, then people start to do other things in between, which basically, it doesn't invalidate the CI process, but it removes a whole lot of value from it because having this super fast feedback loop is just is basic is is the is the point where you get the most value out of a pipeline where you can also say maybe you have some complex test set up with I don't know with, with Postgres running and yeah you can run it locally you should be able to run it locally in the best case it runs locally as best uh, as good as in, in the CI pipeline but maybe you also have some more elaborate acceptance tests and if those also run super quickly then you can really have like this fast feedback loop of okay I'm writing code I'm pushing I'm seeing I'm seeing with the CI system pick it up so on and so forth and dialyzer. Nope. Sorry, I wanted to ask you a question about the one minute part, right? Because that's really short. Because every time I run my CI, I always do everything like basically what I would call in quotes era from scratch, right? Grabbing the dependencies, compiling the whole project. I mean, let alone, I mean, compiling the, the project by itself for production will take a while, like especially if you're building a container. That's definitely over a minute all by itself, right? So are you caching like everything? Yeah. All yeah. the time? Okay, I'm okay. caching all the time. And I also deliberately exclude container building out of that. So I would actually, I mean, you, earlier you said you would maybe you're considering to move container building after testing. From my point of view, I would both do both in parallel and only push the container if the test was successful. But container building, that's, I mean, like image building or container building. Image building is something which is slow by nature because you do do everything from scratch. I mean, Docker does have some nice caching capabilities, but again, those are non-trivial to set up. So I would only really reach for those if you actually have like, I don't know, like image build times of... <laughs> 15 minutes or longer, then I might, might, might go for those. But for the, for the, like, the, the sweet spot, like really CI part of CI CD, where you want to run your tests, where you want to run some checks, where you want to run some things, those I'm always aiming for this one minute mark because then I can just also iterate quickly, right? I can push a commit and they're like, this ah, right, now it works. Or, now it doesn't. Or, oh, this will decrease code coverage. So I'm just going to write another commit. And I don't need to. I could still run tests locally, but I don't need to run the whole shebang of everything. For example, the formatter or credo, like those all run usually inside of CI CD. And I tend to rely on those because they run so quickly, but that only works by using caching. And but like I said, to get into the whole best practice part, that is where I feel a lot of room is, a lot of growth potential is there in general among developers because some people tend to really dig into CICD topics and I'm one of those. I just find it interesting. I don't know. I get an insane amount of satisfaction when I actually have a CICD pipeline and it just works, you know? I mean, like to give one example, which is arguably over-engineered, but I enjoy the heck out of it for all of my projects on GitHub and I use GitHub Actions. I fetch the version number also for the Elixir like mix kind of version, I fetch it from the release version. So I basically, when I draft a new release inside of GitHub, I trigger a release pipeline, which takes the version number I put in the release in the tag, puts it in a file, which is just called version, and writes that to disk, and then it publishes that to hex, and the, the version file is published alongside everything else also to hex. It's like an additional file. And I load that file from <laughs> from disk to fetch the version number of the library. So I only really ever put the version number inside of this one release and nowhere else. It's a single source of truth. And <laughs> I don't know, it took me probably like, I don't know, two days to figure out how exactly I can make it work. But oh my God, was it satisfying <laughs> when it finally worked. So I'm that kind of guy. I wouldn't expect it from everybody else to do it that way. 
But I really think there is a lot of value to be gained from having a smooth and stable and fast CI/CD pipeline. We can go into more of the like also the sciencey things there later on the episode because there's actually an argument to be made that that organizations benefit a lot from investing more in CI/CD than they might initially think. But for now, maybe let's focus on like best practices. And there, one of the best practices there is caching, and caching is just the lowest hanging fruit you can use to um, to get your ICD pipeline as fast as possible. And in that case, for example, for, for feature branches or for pull requests, I think it's acceptable that the very first build is somewhat slower, like maybe not 10 minutes slower, but if it takes, I don't know, like five minutes, let's say that. But then through use of smarter use of caching, if every conc- uh, subsequent build after that should go super fast. And for example, for Knigge, the library uh, I've wrote, the CI pipeline, if you if all the caches are hit, it's like 30 seconds, everything's done. Now, I'm kind of curious too, like, yeah, I, you talk about your versioning, right? Something I was investigating for a project, which was like, how can we easily deploy and mark a, a version as X, you know, like 1.2.3 or whatever, right? Because for me, what I would like to do is not only just, of course, update the file or whatever you want to do for the version for your Elixir application, but also to tag it too, because it'd be good if you can just go to set tag and say, get checkout, get that version, because if you want to track down a bug, you want that specific version, right? How do you handle something like this in a CICD? Do Because I've seen some people where they'll actually like, when I push a tag, then do this stuff, right? Or I've also seen people saying, okay, if I bump this version or if I merge this in there, I want the the CI to actually make a commit for me and actually tag it for me. Yeah, I, so what exactly is your question right now? I'm not sure I'm, I'm following on the question. I'm I'm curious, like you know, how would you handle like versioning your your system within CI/CD? Yeah, and like, do you have the system tag, or do you run it like it, like? Because I'm sure you must do get tagging for versions yeah. right when you release them. Yeah. So, are you tagging by yourself, or are you having the CI do that? Yeah, or, I, I, okay, I get it now. This is just details on how exactly I do it for these projects. I mean, your mileage may vary, right? I've that's what you said. I've, I've seen systems where the CI picks up when you push a tag. And then they, they do things that so like somebody is tagging manually, basically, and then pushing that. What I've now been doing, and I, to be honest, enjoy more, is I draft the release in GitHub. So like in GitHub, create a new release. Then you can also either select a tag or you can create a new one. I always create a new one. I give it a version number. And that then is used as the version number. Uh, so in this particular example, it actually VCI for GitHub, the pipeline gets triggered by a published release. That's the thing you can do in GitHub. And then this pipeline, it fetches the GitHub release, the tech version, basically the tech name. And that's just an environment variable in this case. And it writes it into a file on disk. And then I use that file on disk, publish it also to X, blah, 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 to to have that as the source of truth. So I do it manually in the GitHub, in the GitHub yeah, interface basically, which for me works in this case because I also always want to massage the release notes a little bit, right? Like, yeah, I copy paste links to, to pull requests, which have been merged, so on and so forth. But basically I'm using the changelog for, uh, file format for that, but I also might want to include like a somewhat human readable message, which is like, Hey, this will release does X, Y, and Z, Z right? And this is how this is maybe like, maybe take a look at that documentation over there, so on and so forth. Um, and then that case also can then decide, is this like a semantic minor version? Is it a semantic major version? Is it a semantic patch version, right? I can make that decision while I'm writing the release notes. And that is, again, like where my whole desire was born to have a source of truth. Because before that, I was always, I had to remember to tag the version on GitHub, but to also to change the version in mix and then to push that. And I regularly forgot one of the, one of the two. <laughs> So most of the time I checked the version, but I forgot to update the version in the mix file. But I was like, oh, okay, actually I now need to update the tag again because I also need to change the version in the mix file and now I can create a release of it. I just found it super annoying because that's why at some point I came up with this whole workflow of saying, hey, I put it in a version file and then I actually fill this version file in my continuous deployment step from the from the tagged version. Yeah, but this is like me specifically. And I think... One thing you can learn from that, regardless of how you do it, if you push a tag, if you do it from local machine, if you do it through GitHub releases, if you do it through, I don't know, increasing a version number in your software project, regardless of where exactly that version lives, you benefit a whole lot if you have only one source of truth. So whether or not you have your CI, CD system pick up the version from a Git tag or pick it up from a configuration file or from, I don't know, somewhere else. You benefit a lot when 
that version is the only version which is true, and then wherever else it needs to go, it basically gets fetched from there and put there. So that is, I think, the, the learning you can take away and also goes into this whole notion of uh, making CI, CD as smooth and frictionless as possible. Does that answer your question? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just want to hear your method, see how you do it, and if you had any previous working with the other different ways and how it worked for you. Yeah, and I mean, my previous company, what we had there, at some point, things actually came out kind of nice together. Um, we had we were tagging versions on the main that that at that point it was still master branch, but we renamed it to main at some point on the main branch, and that was then those were then the versions which got deployed to production. So anything which got merged to um, main got deployed in staging, and anything which then got tagged on main got deployed to production. So that's how the system used to work there. The thing is about versioning in general, if you don't have a project which needs to be consumed by somebody else, I don't see a whole host of reasons to act, to use semantic versioning. And I think at that, at that company, we actually used like a date stamp or something. So I don't remember the details, but we did not use semantic versioning. We did use semantic versioning in the beginning. And at some point we were like, there's not much value to be gained actually, because I mean, the whole system as a, as a whole needs to work together and only we are working with it. Nobody else is consuming it. So why not use something which is more easily generated by a machine? But again, whatever you decide to use as a version, have one source of truth. That is definitely, I think, a big learning for me personally, at least. Yeah, what 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 I did for that project is like I capture the dates in UTC, obviously, the uh, the version number we got from the mix file and the git commit hash, the short one. And I try to show all the all three of those on the yeah. UI just so I have an idea about kind of where we are. Yeah. It makes sense to me. I got the previous days we also had at some point we had uh, some CLI tooling we wrote ourselves in Ruby where you could then say, okay, please create a new version for this uh, microservice what we're doing there. So please create a new version for that microservice. And that CLI tooling then actually went ahead, fetched all the pull requests which were merged until that point, created a GitHub release with a new tag, put the description into the GitHub release. You're like, okay, those are the pull requests which have been merged. You could also give it a, like a human-readable description string. And the, that also came nicely together. So I just, I'm just saying this to showcase there are multiple different ways to go about this, and there's no one true way to go about this. But it's super useful to have this one source of truth and this one interface you're using, right? For, for Knigge, it's the GitHub releases interface for me. At that point, we had this command line tool, which was the interface, but you didn't have to go to multiple places and fiddle with multiple things to do a release. Yeah, we went off on a, on a side tangent, but you were in the middle of, of saying no, something. I, at that time. No, I think it, I think it makes a, the Moodle even said to say it is a side tangent. I mean, it goes into the whole CICD pipeline deal. And yeah, maybe some, to come back to where we also talked about earlier with the whole okay how do you can make it fast and reliable to revisit that i mean like i said fast and like one minute for me is a good rule of thumb I mean, another thing is reliability right because if i'm not sure if any of you ever had that experience i do where you have a ci pipeline which fails occasionally out of because of random reasons <laughs> right and that is a pain in the butt because especially when you have a CI system which is slow and fails occasionally, at that point, the CI system loses all its value. Because if you have a pipeline which is like 20 minutes long, and then sometimes it fails and sometimes it's successful, nobody's going to rely on the CI pipeline. Then it's just going to get it short. Then you need to get it, you need to get it to pass. And then people do things like comment out tests, blah, 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 blah. And the one major culprit in my experience for systems which sometimes fail are then actually with a test like flaky tests right where you have tests which sometimes succeed and sometimes fail can all but it can also be like i don't know maybe like in the setup of a ci cd pipeline where you need to spin up a postgres container and you need to make sure that your application actually like the postgres container becomes ready before you start up your application and make it connect that can also be a source of friction sometimes but in most cases it's a flaky tests and yeah why am i saying all of this it just highlights why okay, CI system it highlights why, for example, speed is also important. If you have a CI system which sometimes fails, but it runs in 40 seconds, then yeah, it's annoying, but it can be dealt with. Of course, you should get rid of it. But if you, if and the other way around, if you have a slow CI system, but it's always successful, at least you can rely on that, right? But if you have a slow CI system which sometimes fails, yeah, that's the worst of both worlds. So speed and reliability are kind of the both axes let's say that, which which constitute how valuable a CI system is. And then maybe the third would be transparency. 
So like if this AI system fails, you want to really, it should be easy to understand why, right? Only then it's really giving you value. And to come back then to all of this, to, to, to like, well, how does this constitute, how does this relate to Elixir? For example, for speed, caching is the obvious one. And there are some gotchas in Elixir when you do caching. There's like two things you might want to cache. There's the depths folder and there's the underscore build folder. But the fun thing is if you have only Elixir dependencies, it works like that. You can have like a setup where you say, okay, please cache my depths folder. Now do mix install depths, blah, 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 blah. And now please cache my build folder. Now do compile, right? That is how it usually works. <laughs> Except some Erlang dependencies, they actually put things inside of the depths folders. So like if you compile an Erlang dependency, it might be that there are some artifacts of that compilation, not in build, but in depth. Then you also need to cache those. Depending on your CI/CD system, that's not much of an, an issue. For example, GitHub, when you say, hey, I want to cache this, what they do automatically is like they register like a, like a hook at the end of the of a CI running where they then do the caching and they don't need to do the caching manually. You only need to edit there mm -hmm. once and then at that point it restores the cache, but it basically automatically puts things into the cache. So this is not such a big of a deal with GitHub, but in, for other CI systems, for Circle CI, for example, then you might have to deal, might need, need to jump through more hoops if you want proper caching. That was that was a fun fun little journey to figure out like why why wait I'm caching my I'm, I'm caching my build here like why why is it recompiling those things so yeah fun little wait, learning but if you, there. you already said cache depths and cache build folder but you're saying there's a problem yeah. with the build folder or with yeah the, the depths? The, but depending on how your caching works you after compilation you might also need to cache your depths folder again because oh, some I see. compilation artifacts might end up in there. If you have a CI system which automatically does the caching at the end of a run, right, then it's not a big of a, big of a deal because then it's just going to get captured there. But if you have a CI system where you need to explicitly say, hey, cache now, then yeah, then you might have to jump through some more hoops. Got it. What about what about cache busting? I mean, you ever need to do something for that? Yeah, only, but only ever for dialyzer. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe come back to earlier, right? Because dialyzer is the only thing I feel it's it's impossible to get it fast. Like, I explicitly always put dialyzer inside of, like, a separate CI runner. So it's, I have tests in, like, one runner, and I have dialyzer in another runner, and dialyzer is always the thing which is, like, super slow. For Knigge, it's, like, I think eight minutes if you run it from scratch, but I mean, it's also not, there's not much type specking there. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, then you need to look into, okay, how do you cache the PLTs? By default, the PLTs, I think, get added to the build folder. You might actually want to put them in a different folder because they don't change that often. So you actually benefit from putting that in a different folder and having more generous cache keys. But then, and I've never could figure out why exactly, to be honest, dialers, I might say, hey, the PLTs, I don't like those anymore. And the only solution for me at that point was to then say, okay, I have to bust this cache. And for most CI/CD systems, in my experience, that just tends to be you need know, to change the cache key. So what I've been ended ending up doing for all my CI systems, I have always a cache key prefix. So it's version V1, right? V1, and that I tend to put those in an environment variable. Then just add those to the cache key, and then when I need it, I increase those. That's how I do it. That's how you usually, in my experience, bust caches from CI/CD systems. I haven't seen like Circle CI, for example. They definitely don't have a um, a feature to say I want to explicitly bust this one cache, and I don't think GitHub does. Yeah, I guess it depends on where you're storing your cache, right? So for GitLab, I know initially I was storing cache on a on S3. And so what I would do is I would just go into the S3 bucket and still delete whatever I wanted to get rid of. Yeah, I mean, like I, I always use the built-in cache functionalities from Circle CI and GitHub, and I don't even know what they're doing with that. It's a black box. Okay, yeah. But there's also no, no, no angle to say I want to delete this cache there. But yeah, I think this is like another best practice than having explicit cache, cache key prefixes. You can just increase, increment. It's, it's, it's a surefire way to bust your caches. It's very simple and that is, I guess, another best practice you can use, especially with dialyzer, because at some point dialyzer is going to tell you, hey, I don't like those this PLT over there anymore. I never was able to figure out why. Maybe a listener knows and reach out to me on Twitter and explain to me because I would actually be interested to understand this, but I never digged into it. It's weird that like you cannot just, um, it'd be nice if you could just somehow <clears throat> include a flag that says if you can't use these PLTs, just destroy them and recreate them. Yeah. That would be nice. I guess that would make a lot of sense. I've never thought about it, but uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like, maybe for everybody who's not familiar what those PLTs are, because I we have talked about them for the last five minutes, but um, I'm not sure we defined them. I also don't, I don't know, know what exactly the, what they do, other than they're like a cache of tracing yeah. of something. I'm, I, I also don't persist. No, PLT stands for persistent lookup table, and what it exactly does, it's basically it's the cached version of the inferred types from the standard library. So basically what Dialyzer needs to do to type check your project, it needs to get all the type definitions from all the functions you might potentially use, right? Which includes the standard library. And not everything in the standard library is type spec. So what Dialyzer needs to, because what Dialyzer does, if it's type spec, just use the type specs. Like for, or maybe, maybe not. Ah, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if, it, if that constitutes for the standard library, but at least for, for your, for your user end code, it definitely does both. And like it looks at type specs, but it also infers the types from the code to tell you if type specs are wrong. Otherwise it couldn't tell you that. But yeah, basically all this whole process of inferring the types from the standard library, that takes a very long time. <laughs> I think if you like, if you run it raw on a MacBook, it can be like on a like M1 MacBook, it can easily take like five minutes. Like it, it really takes a while. And if you had to do that every single time you ran dialyzer, you would go crazy. Or to quote the docs, the readme, you would step yourself in the eye with a fork. This is literally what's standing in the, <laughs> the readme of dialyzer. So that's what the PLTs are. They're like this cached version of the unfurled types. So you really want to cache those if you have dialyzer inside of a CI CD system and you don't want to run the beat super slow. But yeah, they it feels brittle. That's my that's my experience with, with dialyzer there, which is also why I don't deal with dialyzer anymore in in like non library user facing scenarios where people need to consume the code. So, Alan, what do you have some secret source for 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 how you do CI/CD systems? Like, I mean, we talked about caching. Now we talked about some pitfalls. Is there anything you any any learnings you had when like setting up CI/CD pipelines for? For Elixir projects like, or Varva, how how do you usually set them up? So, like some, I mean, like we talked about the recording with the uh, guest a while ago, right? But there's is there like some some important milestones you always aim for? Yeah, I mean, I try to aim for a high test coverage, maybe not 100, percent but definitely high as as uh, possible. So, I think running the cover definitely helps. Yeah, building a container and kicking it out. I mean, I think those are the the big ones. I mean, there's no, you know, when I run on a project, I literally go to another project and I just copy paste the the YAML file and change yeah. a couple things yeah. here and there. That's about it. I think everybody does something like that. So, because yeah. you run about yeah. the same stuff. I mean, the only thing is like, I, I do have his list written down and I, and I do want to bring in most of it. The one thing I still can't bring myself to to do that he does is running up and down for his migration files which i think is really excessive but i understand that yeah if you actually run if you ever actually run rollbacks on your system database then that makes sense but for me i've never ran one i don't know about you have you ever run a rollback before hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I can't remember that I've ever done that. No, I've, but then again, I've, I've religiously he, he, written rollback code, but I've, I don't think I've, I mean, I, I used it locally, right? Like if I, that, that I've done, but I don't think I've ever run it on a production system. I mean, for me, yeah, locally I've done that, but sometimes you just cannot roll back, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, it's good. It's good to do, but sometimes if you're really crazy about it, you may go nuts because it could be very, pedantic right when you do it yeah agreed agreed and one one reason learning for me was and i've not yet incorporated that anywhere is that in a ci like usually when you when you write code you tend to focus on like the happy path right like you, you of course still consider like the edge cases and what might go wrong but in general you want to make the happy path work right and that is the path you want to also optimize in ci cd pipelines i come to the realization that you want to optimize for the, what is it, unhappy path? I don't know, the sad path? 
<laughs> and the happy path should just be like a side project product of that. And what do I mean with that? What I mean is that when like in the ICD system, like when it runs through and goes green, great, right? The, the thing is deployed, great. Um, but what is way more interesting is when the thing does not go green, right? And that is like what I mentioned earlier when I said the third dimension is transparency. And that is the thing you want to optimize for. So if your CI/CD pipeline actually fails, you want to make it as easy as possible to understand why. Why did it fail? Was it a credit check that failed? Was it a test that failed? If a test failed, which test failed? Why did it fail? All of those are things you want to make as accessible and easily accessible as possible. Modern CI/CD systems do a whole lot of lifting for that. So like a GitHub, for example, like if a thing fails, it makes it very easy to access, okay, the error part of the logs, right? You don't have to sift through all the logs to get to that part. But in general, that is what you want to optimize for. And that then goes beyond the immediate CI needs. It goes to the CD needs because we... <laughs> so fun little goose chase on when was it was it i don't remember last week sometime sometime last week we got an alert from datadoc where it said hey you have elevated restarts rates in your production cluster and we were like no in a cluster and we were like wait what okay well, what's happening we don't see any user facing issues so let's figure out maybe it's gonna calm down on its own but it didn't so we went into a little goose chase there and at some point it turned out hey we had this Feature, we have this feature branch deployment for our web front end. So there actually every feature branch gets its own deployment and you can test it and it gets like a little subdomain so you can access it. Not yet there on every project, but for the web front end that already works. And it turns out there was one feature branch deployment which was just broken because um, they had like one com component. It's like a view project, one component which did not render and the health check, yeah, the health check, the health check of the project was just accessing the root of the web page and that particular component was part of the root so the root page didn't render returned a non-200 response so kubernetes was like oh this thing is not healthy let me restart it which obviously didn't fix the issue <laughs> so that then went into restart back of loop that went overnight because the commit was done like late late, at the, uh, late evening people went on went 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 to home so overnight the thing started like hundreds of times And then at some point, our monitoring picked it up like, hey, you have elevated restart rates. And that is where I then took this learning away was like, we actually want to make this obvious. It should be obvious when something like this happens. It should not have to involve me. Okay, I have this alert. Okay, what is restarting? Okay, uh, let's, let's look up. Okay, this service over there is restarting. Why is it restarting? Oh, okay, there's this one pull request. And there, oh, okay, that's the ICD system. I kind of failed, but it still went into a deployment because it's a feature branch, kind of blah, 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 right? Instead, it should have been surfaced in the CI/CD pipeline, maybe with like a smoke test or whatever, where you just you push it, it start, it kicks off the CI/CD system, and then it bubbles. This failure bubbles up immediately and becomes visible. And you maybe maybe through a GitHub comment or whatever. I don't really care what the exact mechanic is, but it should be obvious and easy to access. That hey, this thing is broken because of that reason, and that means you need to optimize for the set path, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so counter to how we usually do software development, at least in my experience. Yeah. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant and a ramble there. But do you have any thoughts on that, Adam? No, that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, if you can somehow kick out the, the bad stuff early, right? Yeah, I mean, I think before, I, what I've done before is run checks and stuff. But that's something I, I'm also thinking about, too, because... With GitLab, the they always say that you should build, then test, then deploy. Well, that makes sense if you're actually testing the image, right? Which is something that maybe like you guys would have could have used, right? For your, yeah, your yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, like some so, some kind of smoke testing or something mm -hmm. that that it could have been very yeah. useful. So that's something that that I'm that I'm interested to to take a look. But you know that that would take some time. Like I don't know about you, but most of my projects they have a lot of configuration with environment variables. <laughs> Sometimes, so that would take some time to kind of set up. Yeah, it's it's definitely non-trivial to 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 make that work. I've also never done it. Like I I definitely have seen the need for some kind of smoke testing setup. And for everybody who's not familiar with the term, a smoke testing is basically you. Like the, I, I'm not sure where the term exactly comes from, but I think it's basically you turn it on and you see if it starts to smoke. <laughs> so if it starts at all and doesn't just blow up immediately. And in this particular case, for example, you could make the argument that anything we de deploy to production or staging in this case 
it could benefit of like one step in the CI/CD pipeline where you take the finished image, you spin up a container with all its dependencies, and then you hit the health and the ready endpoints, right? And just say, okay, they, they should become green at some point. Ready, I think you can make the argument that it's not that much value, but again, same thing again, like if you have a pod deployed inside of your cluster and you have a ready endpoint, what the ready endpoint does, right? it, it uh, ready check, it checks if the pod or the container is ready to receive traffic, right? And then you can have a pod in there which is healthy, but never ready because something is not working as it should. Again, that should be obvious. You don't want to have to dig inside of a container and like, wait, this thing is not ready. Why is this thing not ready? And I've, I've been there. Like I've, I've, I've deployed things and the CI pipeline was green. It went through. It deployed on staging. And the change was not there. And I was like, huh? Like, w w w what's happening? Why is the change not there? Why, why is the page still looking the same? And then I look into the cluster and I realize, oh, the pod is not ready because of three reasons. But those reasons, again, were not obvious. So yeah, if you have the luxury of like maybe maybe a greenfield project, I would definitely, or like maybe you have a luxury of a of container which is easily run in like a more CICD setting, then I would definitely consider to have some kind of um, smoke tests for the deployment process where you say, okay, I, this thing should become green at some point. I'm not sure how easily done it is though, because I've, I've never done it. And I mean, like depending on the system, it might take a good few 10, 20, 30 seconds until it really becomes ready to receive traffic. And doing that inside of a CI/CD pipeline, yeah, sounds like work. Let's say that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, Do you have any opinion on like actually when you run your quote-unquote smoke tests, we are actually hitting third-party services for some things? No. no, no, not that I can't think of you. No, I haven't, but I had a manager that was doing it before in a previous company, and I thought that was super weird. Like every day he'd run his tests and they would like create a project in our internal GitHub and then close it. And I'm like, well, that seems weird. And then that's just going to like, you know, make that database ID keep going up every single day. And I, don't know, I just felt that's something you should be doing. I mean, it's okay. It's kind of like the XVCR, right? You run it once and then you kind of record it and then just keep going with it, right? That's the way I kind of see that you can do it. Yeah, I, I think like inside of a CICD project the pipeline, maybe not. But I think there is like a, uh, there is value to be gained from testing some things for real, like from production. And uh, I, I listened to a talk a while ago where they made the argument that um, for your, your your business critical path, which like literally makes you money, right? You might want to test that for real. And if that means you get a package delivered to your fucking office every day, and so be it. But that is the thing which, if you have an e-commerce thing, like that is the thing which gives you money. So. Better make sure that that thing works, right? Because if, for example, if you say I'm using a test credit card or anything, which none, it doesn't really do the purchase, then there is still a part of the path which is not tested. You can make of that as you will, but um, I guess that's a that's a good point, right? Like if you but, really do order something from Amazon every day and Amazon doesn't actually run through that path, I mean, the amount of money they would lose in just like a half hour, yeah of it not working is way worse than like buying what, like a dollar pencil or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I would not expect necessarily to that to happen on a CICD part. That, that would be like a thing outside of that. Like maybe like, I don't know, like some kind of active monitoring, which regularly does that every day because also the, then the feedback loops get, get, get very big. Right. Depending on what exactly your core business is, if it really is e-commerce, the feedback loop can easily be a few days because you go for the thing, you order it, and then you expect the package to be shipped. And I mean, like, if, if an e-commerce platform, then maybe order, I don't know, some fun, something funny, like a six pack of beer. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would, I would see it outside of the CICD pipeline, but I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be challenged on that. I don't have a strong opinion on it. Okay, then maybe let's come back to something I said earlier, right? Like with the science-y things, and I don't have like any studies to point to, but I do know that this is something the whole DevOps movement has been very big on. So like a lot of the things I just laid out have been influenced by things I learned from the DevOps movement. And I don't mean like now DevOps engineers and that kind of thing, but I really like the core idea of like having dev operations move closer together. And there is there are case studies which are showcased maybe kind of unintuitively if that you no let, let, let me let me phrase it differently. So there are case studies which give the indication that it's a good idea to throw your best engineers not into core product work, but into dev tooling and especially CI CD pipelines. Which is kind of weird because, I mean, CI/CD is pretty much nobody's core business unless you're Circus CI, right? But it's the tool which 
software developers interact with on a daily and potentially hourly and potentially minutely basis. So if that thing runs smooth and reliable and stable and gives you all the information it needs, it gets out of your way, right? It's good tools. It's basically the same idea as if like a carpenter would buy the cheap tools from, I don't know, the dollar store, or if a carpenter buys the cheap the, the good tools from whoever does good carpentry tools, I don't know. And it's the same there. So you you might think, oh my God, we we all our teams have not have a velocity which is too low in our opinion. Maybe let's do less of the ICD work then, right? Let's do more product work. That actually does quite the opposite. Potentially, I mean, it might work for a short while, but then at some point, software rot sets in, the ICD pipelines break because of outdated versions, blah 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 blah. And then your velocity is actually going to drop down. That is the thing which has been confirmed again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Which is something where, like the whole, like I said, the whole DevOps movement is like very big on. Like you really want to focus on your tools and make your tools as smooth and reliable as possible. Make the feedback loops as small as possible, which comes, which does circles back to the whole thing about you want your CI pipeline to run fast. And what did I want to do? And and this other had one one destination I wanted to go to. No, now I forgot it. But yeah. So the whole DevOps movement is very big on those kind of areas. And they have some science case studies and studies which show that, yeah, there's truth to it. Organizations which have a high velocity, they also tend to invest some serious manpower into their CI/CD pipelines and like platforms to run software on and so on and so forth. There is a clear correlation between those. I mean, correlation doesn't mean causation. That's the yeah. I have a lot to say about this one. When I come to these kind of companies, and I just kind of talk to the engineers who are already over there, and ask them how come we don't do automated testing, CI/CD, etc. Mostly, what I hear back is, "Oh, management doesn't want us to do that. They want us to focus on features only." So we just kind exactly. of keep doing that. And then when you have a talk with management, and you know, like sometimes you have this. It's like you know, people say, "No, no, no, I didn't say that." But then you you kind of know that they did say it because of the way they reply back, and also. Other people kind of confirm the story, or you kind of find out after a while who's telling what. What I usually find out is that management has no idea about this stuff because they're not the experts. They kind of like give it to us, you know, geeks to figure out and they do their own thing. And they may have mistaken some words like, you know, about we got to quickly get this thing done means that we shouldn't be doing best practices, which is interesting. Yeah. It's also, I mean, like, I think a part of where this whole confusion stems from is. If you, for example, say, hey, we should focus on features and don't do all of these things, right? That doesn't mean that these things don't happen. Because, I mean, what, what is CI-CD? CI-CD is the automation of steps which at least big parts need to happen anyway, right? Especially CD, continuous de- de- deployment, right? Deployment needs to happen anyway. Like at some point, you need to take the software you wrote and deploy it somewhere to make it accessible to the world. So... If you don't invest anything into that, that doesn't mean deployment vanishes. It just means deployment becomes manual and brittle. <laughs> That's the thing which happens. So if you look at it from that perspective, you could also rephrase it and say, okay, you don't want to invest into things which are not your core business, but you want to make to enable the teams to focus on your core business by making everything else, which needs to happen anyway, as smooth as possible, right? Like testing... And I mean, test, testing and all those sorts of things are topic things we do because we want short feedback loops, right? I, I don't write a test because I think testing is I don't know for 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 itself, right? I don't, testing in of, in of in of itself doesn't serve any purpose. I could also test by writing things and put them in production and see if it breaks. That's also a way to to check if my code does the thing it think it does. But the feedback loop is a lot bigger and also the impact of <laughs> really good angry customers, right? Um, so that's why we do testing. So all of those things are just tools we are using to at some point actually do deliver value for the core business. And if you look at it from that angle, not investing into that and not making it as smooth as possible becomes, yeah, just dump, to be honest. It's just dump. Yeah, and I think also, you know, it, it takes management also to kind of... St- there's basically two ways to learn, right? One is that, you know, your mom tells you don't do not do that and you just don't do it and you just kind of know not to do it. And the other one is they tell you don't do it and then you do it and then you find out why you shouldn't do it. So it's kind of like yeah. positive, negative ways to learn, right? And I think mostly once you run into a negative way, then it's like, okay, 
let's try a way and see if this works, right? So add in a CI server to make sure that, like you said, the biggest one I think that is huge is deployments, right? Yeah. Once your deployments become automated and like you said, less brittle, once that stops, it's like, wow, I don't know what life was like before that. And then you start kind of adding in stuff, say, okay, let's try this, let's try that. Yeah, like it's the at that point, it's the usual story of automation, right? I mean, like automation in the best often starts with having like a manual run book, and then it's like okay, you need to do that, you need to do that, you need to do that, and then at some point, the run book is maybe is so complete that you can actually take it and script it, right? And at some point, I would, I mean, if no, let me, let me phrase it differently. Um, I would, I would bet money. If you somehow could wave a magic wand and you could get rid of CICD like, as a whole concept, right? And everybody forgets about it. I would bet money that the practice like in the in the way we do it would emerge again over time because it's just the natural thing of automating things. And I mean, like automation at the end of the day is what software is all about. So automating, writing software to make software writing easier seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> And that is kind of what 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 the ICD is about, right? Like making writing software to make the software development cycle smoother and automated. We are not yet there to automate code writing itself, but I mean, at the end of the day, high level languages are nowhere near what machine code looks like. So there's also some kind of automation in there hidden. You know, now, it starts all the way down. I have a question for you now. If you don't continuously deploy to production. Does it really? Can you really say that you're actually doing CD necessarily? Would you then do? If you don't continuously deploy to production, because well, what is the, uh, I mean, at some point you need to deploy to production. So what is the alternative? Well, what I'm saying is like this, right? So for a lot of projects, we kind of, I mean, we kind of say, okay, for this week, we're going to do these features, right? And we do the features. We do continuously deploy the features to a staging environment. And then once we kind of clear up with business when we should release this new version, then we just merge whatever's on staging onto, you know, production and I mean, I wouldn't really consider that necessarily CD because you're not continuously delivering features to production. Because sometimes you have to line these things up, right? You can't just update like APIs for a mobile app. You know, they, they have to like sync these kind of things up. That's one thing. And sometimes like if you're going to release a feature for like, let's say an e-commerce and it has to come out on Black Friday for whatever reason, right? Then you can't really deploy stuff so early necessarily unless you mm-hmm. add in like protections and stuff. I mean, you could yeah. do it, but there's there could be constraints where you cannot necessarily deploy certain things all the time. I I think I have to answer this question with with a classic, it depends, um, so to speak, because the continuous delivery in of itself is a tool. It's a tool to make feedback loops shorter. And at the end of the day, everything is about feedback loops. Even like businesses operate on feedback loops, right? Like if you do a strategy change in a business, you do a change in a business, you want to see what kind of effect it has and whether or not you want you to continue it, right? Like a fail fast is a principle not only from software engineering, but also from business, from business development. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a business person, but I know that much, right? And continuous delivery in of itself is is like a tool to make feedback loops shorter. So yeah, if you don't continuously deliver changes to production, then your feedback loop is going to be bigger because your feedback from real customers is only come in at the point where you deliver to production. That might be problematic. It might not be problematic. That really depends on your concrete use case. So I would not necessarily say dogmatically you're not doing continuous delivery because you don't deliver every change to production immediately. But depending on your um, business, on your core business, that could have negative effects or not. I don't know. I don't know your business, you know. But if you, for example, I mean, like at the end of the day, you want to do continuous delivery to get feedback as early as possible. And like, for example, if that feedback is in form of errors, right? Or if that feedback is in form of customers having a higher conversion rate, I don't know, that kind of thing, right? And um, then you end up potentially investing less effort into paths which are not as successful. That, that might be like for, for software where you say, okay, this thing doesn't work out, it doesn't scale or it errors out in ways which are unexpected, so this path is unsuccessful and to try out something else. Or it might be in a bigger scope where, okay, this new feature doesn't change user behavior in the way we expected it to, blah, 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 right? But at the end of the day, it always is like, I have this thing I want to achieve and I do this change. Does this change work? And if you can get the answer to that in a short amount of time, you're always better off. I'm not sure that okay. did that answer your question because I can't. No, I, no, no, it, it, it does, right? And yeah, I, I, I guess that's just kind of like how you want to play this. I mean, because if you do look at a lot of pieces of software, they are versioned, right? You don't just mm-hmm. like wake up someday and then you have a, 
one new small feature necessarily. Some some software is like that. But a lot of time it's like, you know, like let's take uh, iOS, right? Mm-hmm. You got version 16, 16.1 coming around the corner. You don't just wake up and, you know, the patch release has got some new small thing that was added to it. You get a bunch of changes all at one time. Mm. But, so, I, but, I, uh, but I think there's, I mean, I'm not, I would have to now look it up what the release cadence is for Apple. But in general, I feel there is a tendency to have less and smaller releases more often. Yeah, I feel that's what they're doing recently since maybe 15 or 14. They're like releasing like one to two times a month or even a couple of months as yeah. time goes on. I think initially it's like we have one to two times a month. And then after some time, it's like, what, maybe one every couple months or something. Depends on which vulnerability gets found in iOS this week. <laughs> that was like what was going on for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just trying to observe throughout the industry, right? I mean, like you also observe it with Java is a good example, to be honest. I mean, I'm not I'm not a big Java fan, but everybody knows that. But in general, like how the JVM, they used to have these big, big, big Java versions, which changed the whole slew of things every few years. And now they have, I'm not sure exactly how often, but multiple ones per year, I think, right? We had Java, what? I don't know, 18? Something like that. And something crazy like that. Yeah, yeah uh, probably higher. <laughs> but then again, like it's the same idea, right? They release more often with, with, with less effort and check if things work out as you expected them to. It's a trend which is uh, observable throughout the industry. And I mean, at the end of the day, it makes sense. If you if you are a business or if you have a software project and you release once per year, right? And then maybe your release turns out to be shit, right? Like it doesn't do what you expected it to. It happens. And if you have another business or another software project which releases twice per year and they have a release and they turn the release turns out to be shit, they can already do corrective action before the other business has released, right? Like they, they can potentially push out another version which already takes corrective uh, actions on the previous fuck up. And they're better off for that. So they can react faster. There's even fun thing. There's like this whole, it's the same idea from the military. They have this uh, Ulu loop or something it's called, where they basically observe, assess, I don't know the exact words, but basically it boils down to figure out what kind of situation you're in, deduct information from that, make a decision and act on it. And if that loop is faster with your troops than with the enemy, you're better off because you can react faster to changing to a changing combat situation. And at that point, you get an advantage because you can act faster. You can do things more quickly than enemies so you can outmaneuver them, right? So the whole yeah. idea about like, having this feedback loop as short as possible, it's everywhere. That's actually and, what I hear what's happening in Ukraine. It's like the Ukrainian soldiers are found very much a Western style where they have like these mid-range commanders who are like really close into the battle. But Russia has a very old style where it's really like totally top-down, like several layers yeah. up. yeah. And they're trying to make the feedback loop faster by putting them more into the combat zone, which is just getting them in trouble, getting them curled. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's a kind of a more modern day military example of how you have like the Ukrainian troops who are following a Western style where you have very fast acting people on the ground making on on the spot choices and people who are getting late messages and not knowing what's actually what's going on and just kind of making choices and how that actually works out. Yeah. But I think it highlights again, like uh, this, this idea about having short feedback loops. It's everywhere. And you, uh, if you're having a shorter feedback yeah. loop, it's always better to having a longer one. Always. There's, there's like no reason not to have a shorter feedback loop if you can. You can make the argument if it's like worth it, right? If the value you gain from decreasing the, the size of your feedback loop is, is worth the investment you need to do. That's something a discussion we can be making. But if I have the choice with like two equal choices and one is like a shorter feedback loop, but all things otherwise, they're equal. I'm also going to choose a shorter feedback loop, always. Okay, makes sense. It's also the same with TDD. Like, this is where, where, where the kind of TDD also shines, right? You write a test, it's red, you write some code, it's green. It's like the shortest possible feedback loop. Mm. It's like yeah. 20 seconds, one minute, I don't know. It depends on what exact how granular your tests are. But again, <laughs> shorter is better. Yeah, that, that's the crazy part. Like, I, I, I see some of these guys, like, I try to interest them in the testing. They're aware of the benefits of it, but they're still stuck in the days where, like, they literally, they try to test, they wrote some new code. They manually set up the case. It doesn't work. Then they had to try to figure out why, why it's not working. They write more code and they manually set back up the case. I'm like, dude, you could just set the case. Maybe it takes you, I don't know. Let's just, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. It takes you an extra one, three minutes of writing up the code, et cetera, right? But how fast you can run that test is probably, thousand times faster than it takes for you to set up the damn thing every single time. Like I, I, I find it crazy that I just run the right there on my test 
90% of the time I finish everything, it's ready to go. It works out of the box. Sometimes there's sometimes it doesn't work where there's an extra case somewhere or I missed a field something that something yeah. strange out the corner, right? I mean, your tests aren't as good as your, as the way you write them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, still, they could have done it a lot, a lot faster if they just wrote the test to begin with. Because what they're going to do actually once they get it working manually is they're actually then they're going to write the test. <laughs> I'm just telling you. So it's like you're just, what is it called? Delay the inevitable, basically. Yeah, and that sounds like you have a subjectively longer feedback loop than if you would write end up a test earlier. So, yeah. Okay. I think I feel like we can end it here because like we, we started with the ICD then we ended up in like big picture military engagements and now we're back to tests. So we, we, we kind of did the whole loop. A, the podcast is a loop in of itself. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> it's a good day so far. Okay. Anything, any last words you would like to add, Alan, before we go to picks? No, I think like you said before, like check out that episode if you guys are looking into CICD. You don't have to do everything from there, but I think that one's a really exhaustive list that I'm considering to, to put in at some point whenever I have a, a moment. And I think today was really more kind of theoretical and more practical based. So I think today's episode is pretty, it was all good by itself. Nice. Okay. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, then let us transition to picks. Um, I'm just going to start off for a change. I have two picks. One is a bit controversial. I think I already picked this one, but that's a book. It's called Effective DevOps. It's really a thick book. I also never finished it. I tend to do that with books. Like I, I start to read them and then I, at some point when I feel like I, I got everything I need out of those, I drop them again. That was one of those. So not sure how the whole, how good the whole book is, but the parts I did read, I really enjoyed and they go into what I just laid out also with like the ideas behind DevOps, the principles, why it's important, why, like what kind of organizational challenges you might encounter, those kind of things. Because I feel the whole term DevOps has become very muddy and that it, talks about Kubernetes, is the DevOps tool, whatever, right? And the DevOps engineers. And there's a great quote a while ago, I, I saw on a talk, which was, um, Kubernetes is to DevOps what, what Jira is to Agile. And depending on the person, you might think, yeah, okay, then if I do Kubernetes, I, I'm, I'm doing DevOps because we're doing Jira, so we're Agile, right? <laughs> and it's, it's not like that. <laughs> like Kubernetes might be a tool you might be employing to get better at doing DevOps, but DevOps in of itself is first and foremost a bunch of principles. And the book is pretty good on laying that out. And the other pick, again, it's controversial. I'm going to pick a podcast, which is not a top-end dev podcast. And So the podcast is called uh, The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim. And he's the author of The Phoenix Project, which is also a book relatively popular in the DevOps space from what I've seen. And I just enjoy the podcast very much because he tends to focus on DevOps topics, but also yet again, same with effective DevOps, like more on the principles behind it. And he has like guests there, interviews. And what he does in his episodes, which I find really great is if they have like a concept or something and they mention something, he interjects. So he has like little things cut in where he explains what that concept is, why this is important, where this has come from. So he regularly gives context to little things inside of the discussion by cutting in, in, in the, basically editing in little snippets. And I find it just very useful. And I learned a lot of while listening to that thing. So yeah. If Chuck now comes along, so if, if I'm not here next week anymore, then uh, please, then you know that Chuck got to me and beat me <laughs> because I <laughs> recommended a different podcast, not of the Dubbed Devs, but I think it's a it's a it's worth a listen. And I'm just joking, by the way. Chuck is a cool guy. What's uh, the name of the podcast again? I was trying to look it up. The Ideal Cast. Yeah, because I think I read that book. You said it was called uh, what again? The Phoenix Project. I think the I Phoenix read that Project. Book, yeah. yeah. Isn't it like where they, it's a fictional story, right? Or is it? It's a fictional story? story about a real project, basically. Yeah. Like yeah. basically like it's writing a fictional, fictional scenario about a, a software project gone wrong and then how it, what they did to make, fix it again. That's like kind of a Phoenix, right? Like from ashes, blah, blah, blah. So Alan, what are your picks? Yeah, I just have one pick for today. It's the uh, Ember Mug. I don't know if you're. I think you're also a pretty big coffee drinker, right? And so like, I'm always so busy at work. I, I pour my coffee. I walk away, I come back to to drink it. It's, you know, lukewarm. And uh, that's just yeah, not I get cool, it. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. <laughs> you, you've been there before, right? So usually yeah. I, actually, I get my exercise by walking over the microwave, sticking it in there. I pull it out, too hot to drink. 
I'm in the feedback loop, right? Which is not good for for coffee. And so I got the uh, the ember mug, which I think is perfect for anybody to when you're sitting at your desk for a while. I also got the the ember travel mug, but uh, that one I think is it's not really really good. It's okay, like it makes sense. It, it lasts for like three hours or whatever. If you're sitting at your desk for a long time, I think you guys should check out the ember mug. Works great. The only thing you have to know is like it's not like a coffee warmer. Do you have one of these or something or no? No. Nope. Germans own this. No. No. Nope. I talked to a couple, quite a few German people. They all seem to like it and know about it. So the idea is that you should pour in a, a hotter beverage than what you really want it to be. And it's going to let it drop down to the right temperature that you like and keep it at that temperature. Interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's the idea. So if you try to use it as something where it's like you have cold water and try to heat it up to what you want, you're just going to kill the battery and it's going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. So that's just the wrong way to use it. Anyways, it's perfect for me. Uh, sit at my desk all the time drinking coffee. The The charger is basically like a coaster. So you just plop your, plop your cup on there. You don't need to move it. And it can keep your cup hot all day, like as long as you want for forever because it's just sitting there charging. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that sounds useful. I'm definitely going to check that yeah, out. Yeah, see, I told you, all the Germans I talked to are like either <laughs> love the idea or already have it, right? So it's a little bit expensive. It's like, if you get like the 12 or 14 ounce, I think it's like uh, 150 bucks US. Yo, it's also 150 euros. Good gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not cheap. Uh, they also have other ones that are similar, like other companies and stuff. But if you really like coffee, just think about, like you said, investment in the tools, right? Mm. If you buy the best tool, you know, and you're, in, and you're a professional coffee drinker, maybe it makes sense (laughs) i did see one professional coffee drinker on youtube that was like he really raved about it because you know you get down to the degree that you want right Mm -hmm. yeah fair enough i I, I can see the appeal exactly yeah so i recommend it i got both the travel mug and the uh the the coffee mug i think the coffee mug uh is is great for most people travel mug is kind of unique because you only get three hours battery right you're gonna be traveling maybe doing more than three hours so it just doesn't make sense. Anyways, yep. So that's kind of my pick. Super happy with it. So I would love to let people know about this this cup. Nice. I'm definitely going to check it out. Maybe I'm going to wish for it for Christmas. It seems like a perfect Christmas gift, to be honest. It's all okay. you're going to get. Yeah. Okay, then. Uh, thanks for listening, peeps. Um, I just want to add one little thing. So if you want to chat about any of these CI, CD, DevOps, feedback, loopy kind of topics, it's, as you might have heard, something I find very interesting. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. wolf for earth is my, my handle there. Happy to have a chat about that. Seriously, like I've, I've just, it's the thing I could talk about for hours. So with that being said, thank you for tuning in and come back when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.